So, Dell, you can yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, but we met in 2019, right? The the Comic Fest 2019? Yeah, Comic Fest 2019, right before the world went to crap. <laughs> okay, I just want to make sure about that because I was thinking to myself that uh, it was really a bummer to meet you and be like, all right, well, I'll see you. Oh, wait, no, a year, a year later, 2020. It was yeah. literally the year of COVID. No, we, we didn't. When did we meet at 2020? At, at Comic Fest. No, right? it happened. And, uh, oh, no, you're right. You're right. We met. This was right before everything shut down. Yes. Right before everything shut down, yeah. That's what we met, not 2019, 2020, because it was, it was that year. And then it was like, all right, cool. No cons for the rest of the year. Yeah. Shit. <laughs> Timelines are weird. Um, right? Yeah. It's 2020 was the, was the first time we met, and then we're like, all right, well, uh, I'll see you when I see you, and hopefully we don't die of COVID. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's work that way out. But uh, um, I I have mentioned on this podcast a lot of times that uh, San Diego Comic Fest is one of my favorite shows because I always walk away with new friends. And I remember um, one thing that you said that really uh, <laughs> really made me – so I think it solidified our friendship in my mind was when I said the only uh, we were talking about candidates becoming president. And I was like, the only reason why I would want Kamala Harris to be a president is because I want more Maya Rudolph in Saturday Night Live. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, oh, OK, that's that's fair. I'm down with that. I, <laughs> I was going to correct you. But no, that's a good reason. I like Maya Rudolph. <laughs> And then she became vice president. So that was uh, a weird twist of fate. Yeah, yeah. What got you into San Diego Comic Fest? Money, dollar bills. The oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> I paid my no. Um, honestly, it was the Matt Dunford connection. You know, I've been doing art shows around San Diego for a couple years, and Matt popped up. He was we knew him back then as the Pokemon Master. <laughs> And then he started coming around saying, I'm the chairman of Comic Fest and come down and see it. And so I, for a couple of years, missed it because I was working um, a hospitality job where I worked every single weekend, every single vacation, every single summer. But um, 2020 was kind of like a chill year for me. You know, leading into the pandemic, things were kind of starting to slow down for me. And so I was like, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to get this weekend off regardless of, of how I got to do it. And I magically was able to make it. But, and it was, it was the exact kind of show that I wanted to be at because I was flying to the East Coast and to Canada to go to smaller comic shows just to get that old feel of like in-person, personable comics experience. That is, uh, that's definitely what Comic Fest is. And I like that. I like being able to have conversations with people, with fans. Yeah. No, and not be like in a line like all day. <laughs> and one of the, one of the things I really hate about the bigger one, the bigger conventions, is that if you are in line to see someone that you would really like to talk to, that you're a big fan of theirs, the person ahead of you is not really a fan. They just want to get things signed. <laughs> yeah, the, just, the commerce element has definitely become more and more prevalent, especially at SDCC. Because I remember, um, it's a story that I tell like a million times, but I remember they used to send out like prepackaged flyers with like the ability to buy your tickets. And back then it was like $45 for all four days. But if you missed the April deadline, 
you could still walk up to the convention and get in for like 60 bucks. And I was mad that I had to pay those extra 15 bucks to get my tickets. But even back then, you could walk up to somebody and be like, hey, I'm a big fan. And they would do like a quick little two second convention sketch for you. My buddy was commenting like not long ago that now people charge for even that. It's like $20 for like a scribble. <laughs> my first SDCC was, uh, it was right after graduation from my high school. My friend's like, hey, you want to go to Comic-Con? And I was like, sure, what's Comic-Con? And it was the night before Comic-Con, before preview night. And we drove all night to get in, to be the first in line to buy our badges on site. <laughs> Do you remember what year that was? Uh, 2004. 2004, okay. Yeah, yeah graduated yeah. high school, I think. <laughs> I think cool. 03 was the last one that I personally paid for. Okay. That was when I was in. I was when I was graduating college at the time. Um, and there was a lot of cool things to do in San Diego at the time. There was like a, a film fest. There was a couple of film festivals, but there was the SD Small Film Festival. So I would do that over the summers, and then go to Comic Con because I loved Comic Con for years and not been able to able to go because I lived far away or it was expensive um, or I didn't have anyone to go to but that really has never been a factor because I still went without anybody for years and was just a weirdo just traveling traversing the halls I was telling friends uh, this year that I'm like yeah th those stairs up there they uh, they used to be like a really cool place where we would buy our bagels and would have breakfast on like the second story place that would look at the convention center but now oh. it's it's right there at the entrance of Fifth, and you can see the stairs on the side. And for and a lot of times they change it to different like museums or different like hot spots. For yeah, Google. yeah. But back when I first started, it was just a spot to it was a spot with chairs and tables that you can have breakfast. It was not attached to any restaurant, and that I'm that was delightful. I missed that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. The I'm, golden days, the golden days have come and gone. <laughs> I, I'm. I'm upset about the crowds. I'm definitely upset about the crowds, but I'm not one of those people that are like, uh, oh, things should always stay the same kind of guy. I'm not, yeah. I, I'm okay with things changing. It's just weird walking down Gaslamp and see, it's right after Comic-Con. We're recording this right after, not right after. Holy shit. Okay. <laughs> I went from Comic-Con to Midsummer Scream and now it's been a week since Midsummer Scream, so it's not right after. Just my brain is right after so I'm thinking about all the things that happened that weekend and walking down gas lamp and being like, oh, you know, that was a uh, back in my day. That was uh, <laughs> uh, shit. I'm blanking on the name of. Oh, uh, fuck. What's it called? Damn it. Um, no, I can't believe I'm blanking on this. It was how oh, damn it. I had it in my mind. OK, so there was a restaurant where people, the staff is meant to be rude to you. Oh, um, Dick's Last Resort. Thank you. There you this, go. Yeah. I was walking past the Star Trek, the, the the Star Trek thing, and I was like, oh, this used to be Dick's Last Resort. Those were good times. And then yeah. I was also missing Burger Lounge on on Fifth, and I'm like, damn it. That's right. That was actually the good one. I had a friend who um she liked to go downtown a lot, especially up to the Tiki Bar up above the um Padre Stadium. But uh, she is, um, she's got celiac disease. And that burger lounge was the only one that didn't fry the onion rings in the same thing that they, that they fried the fries. So because French fries aren't battered, you know, like you don't want to get flour on them. So she could get French fries there. 
And all the other burger lounges would just fry everything together so she couldn't have them. She would have reactions. That sucks. Yeah. I, it's so weird, the, the privileges that you don't know exist. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, 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 often, I often tell people that, uh, when, what was it? I was having a conversation with a friend. And I'm like, uh, I, I told him about my privileges. And my friend's like, do you have an example? I'm like, no, but I'm a heterosexual, cisgender, white guy. So if we're talking, eventually we'll get, we'll find a privilege I have that I didn't know about. And even though the fry privilege <laughs> doesn't apply to all those descriptions I just said, um, healthy, healthy is a privilege. Uh, being able to, be, I think, I think being able to eat anywhere and not really worry about what's in it is a is a absolute privilege. Yeah, um, it's one that's in my mind because my brother um, had a lot of food allergies growing up, and so <laughs> I was the the snotty younger brother who was like, "Man, it's his fault. We can't have this. Stuff. We couldn't have ice cream in our house. We only had sherbet." <laughs> My mom would make the same key lime pie as a dessert because it was like the safest thing that all of us could have. <laughs> but yeah, you know, like as you go through life, if you're an open-minded, open-hearted person, you become more and more aware of things that are available to you that are not available to other people. And I think that's the path of being a good human is like being aware of that and, and being like taking action to kind of make that more acceptable, more understandable, to pat to spread the word you know, it's really it's really it's easy to spot an asshole nowadays because they refuse they refuse to acknowledge or accommodate anybody else besides themselves and then they get defended too where you're just yeah. like oh this place should have more ramps and i'm like how dare you <laughs> i i was raised on stairs this is ridiculous there doesn't need to be more ramps <laughs> at uh at comic-con i'm gonna keep on talking about comic-con right now apparently but yeah, this is the decompress episode. I get it. <laughs> this it really does feel like it. This this whole past week has been me catching up, and I think now I'm actually decompressing. Um, me and my friend Abby, we went to get food, and then we speaking. Of, when you said that your brother couldn't eat ice cream, um, Abby was like, "Hey, we should go get ice cream," and I was like, "Oh, I'm lactose intolerant," and then I realized that no, wait, CVS is all over the gas lamp, and so I just picked up some lactate and had a wonderful ice cream at Ghirardelli, and fuck, that was delicious. Nice. It, it's Actually, pronounced Ghirardelli, right? Or... Yeah, Ghirardelli's on 5th, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, since you brought it up, I'm going to put a little pin in that, because I am an ice cream maniac. I have been lactose intolerant for years, but I sometimes skate the line. Okay. But I did find a whole host of ice cream places that serve, like, oat milk ice cream, vegan ice creams, like really extravagant flavors of like sherbets. So I want to actually, I'll, after this, I'll share that list with you because they have some really great options. When you're in the San Diego area again, like we totally got to do like an ice dream tour or something. Oh man, an ice cream crawl? Down. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when we when I went to Ghirardelli, because I passed by it all those, I, I passed by it many times throughout the years of going to the gas lamp. Um, and this is the first time I actually got one. And I was like, I don't know what to get because I don't usually buy ice cream at Comic-Con. But I saw that, you know, the the hot fudge sundae is like their popular thing. It's there, it's their, like, everyone gets them. I'm like, all right, cool. I'll get it too. And their fudge is so delicious because it doesn't taste like fudge. You know how fudge is like super rich? 
This was really yeah. light. It tastes more like a brownie than fudge, and it was so good. <laughs> it's so good. I can't. It's ridiculous. <laughs> this episode is not sponsored by Fudge or Gurielli, but just. <laughs> yeah. You sold no. me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> not sponsored, but I highly recommend checking them out. <laughs> and telling them that Jimmy sent you, even though they'll be like, Jimmy who? <laughs> Jimmy Pesto? No. <laughs> Um, but you said that Dunbar got you over to uh, San Diego Comic Fest. Uh, when was how <laughs> was he just visiting where you were, or did he just like was it a stranger on the street and he's just like, by the way, uh, hey, I gotta tell you about Comic Fest, which I believe I would not doubt that he would just run into random people and spread the word. It's a little a little bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> um, I kind of got. Um... I got I got pulled into the San Diego art um, scene, art community, a few years, about, I guess, eight years ago now, eight or seven or eight years ago. And he just popped up at Bar Basic downtown. And Bar Basic's a pretty popular venue for pop-up art shows. My friends, uh, Thumbprint Gallery, Paul Ekdow and Johnny Tran, they've been doing shows there for like a decade or more. I think they originated the shows there. And he just popped up one time and was talking Pokemon like super crazy. <laughs> so he stood out. And when I got to know him, I was like, okay, this guy likes comics. We like comics. So let's let's just stay in touch. And through the years, you know, as as a lot of different events popped up, Matt always kind of kept us clued in. Um, like when there was like little fish um, uh, art model drawing things with like cosplayers, we would go to those. Um yeah, just a ton of stuff around town. He knows a man about town. He knows where all the stuff is. He's very well connected, as we all know by this point. Absolutely. And a lot of times when you when he tells you something, he has in-person citations. He's he's one person I'm not worried about proving what he said. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. I actually just recommended my friend a tailor because of Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that. Uh, I don't... I like recommending food places in my town. I would never, if so, if, I don't think I've ever and will ever know a tailor. That just doesn't sound like something I'll do. Like, <laughs> Jimmy, <laughs> Jimmy, do you have a tailor you can recommend? I'm like, oh, I don't know. I didn't know they still existed. <laughs> that sounds like something from like, right, the 1950s. Like, oh, do you have a tailor? <laughs> yeah, it's on my list next to blacksmith in the, in the town. <laughs> <laughs> I would probably have a, actually, I've had a blacksmith before. My late friend Ian used to smelt swords in his in his home, <laughs> and all of his his D and D buddies would like make knives and stuff. So I've known a blacksmith before I've known a tailor. Yeah, and as you were talking, I realized that I know more metalworkers than tailors. I, <laughs> yeah. I I actually have connections to people. If you want to make a weapon, I can help you out. A, a, a clothing? How dare I don't know people that make clothing. <laughs> <laughs> Is any of that clothing going to be metal? Because I <laughs> might have a guy for it. I, I can hook you up then. <laughs> well, I mean, I do know cosplayers, so that could count, right? Yeah, you know, that's actually a really, really good um, point. Because I have a friend who, she was a famous person on the internet for a minute. And uh, other people that know me know that I have been, in the past, a karaoke hound. And so I went to my favorite karaoke place, The Hole in the Wall um in liberty station and um i ended up meeting sergeant swift stitch who is a cosplayer fixer upper 
and an excellent seamstress and just someone who knows all about clothes and thrifting and like just cool stuff that I have like like that much information on. I've never been a clothes horse in my life. I so you said that you do karaoke. Is that the karaoke in the San Diego area then? Yeah, yeah. Because like uh, the person who drew my blood at Comic Con, they said that they work at a few bars and they do karaoke, and I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And like, no, it's <laughs> fun. And I was like, all right, I'm just <laughs> hearing the same old, same old over and over again. I I, I can imagine you hear Queen all the time. <laughs> It it sort of depends. Um, the pandemic kind of shipped things. It it probably sucks, honestly, to be around tons of people without masks on who want to like spit on the mic and stuff. But I did have a friend who um, was he's very seasoned. He'd been doing karaoke for like 15 years, and as things started to open up again, he bought like the little mic condoms and had hand sanitizer nearby. Um, he would flip the mics every other session to kind of let it rest. And, you know, so there's some people that are conscionable about it that know how to do it correctly. Um, but then also a lot of people that were very small operation, they couldn't make money. So they kind of got out and the corporate people kind of came in. So nowadays when you go to um, karaoke around San Diego, it's often like the same company that just has multiple hosts send out these people with these like very basic lists Everything is all online, which is nice because you don't have to like handle the same binder that everyone's handled, but it's kind of like the same songs. True. But I think every good karaoke host knows to not let people sing like the same obvious songs and especially not the long ones like Stairway to Heaven. Most karaoke DJs know to like do not let someone sing a seven minute song <laughs> or if they do, they'll put it at the very end as a closer. Cause that's the way that's how you usher people out of the out of the bar. Like we gotta leave, so I'm gonna bore you to death. I went to a cidery yesterday, and uh, they had karaoke going on, and the person picked "Hey Jude," and the end of that song lasts a long time. Yeah. And all the singer does is just say "Hey Jude" a million times. It was hilarious. Whenever the chorus, no, 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 every time that would happen up again. She would have to say, hey, Jude, like 10 more times. It was just fantastic. I was laughing my ass off. Karaoke shade and Freud. She's like, I, I hope this is almost done. I'm like, I don't. <laughs> and I know those are people that, that want the awkwardness. Like my cousin has always dreamed of doing that thing where you go and sign up for tequila. Yeah. <laughs> say tequila 11 times over the course of three minutes yeah but then you have i i, I think it's hilarious i always laugh when i see that happen and it, it it happens a lot and you i just complain that i don't like hearing uh queen's bohemian rhapsody a million times but i do think that tequila gag is funny because people <laughs> just stand there as the music's playing <laughs> <laughs> um you said you got roped into the art community uh what is your art history my art history is about as convoluted as art history in and of itself. <laughs> so the short of it is that I was a um, latchkey kid. My mother was a full-time uh, registered nurse. My dad was retired from the Navy. So I was I was nannied by the TV a lot. And then uh, picture books and comic books and cartoons and anything I could get my hands into. Um, when we were a lot younger, my brother would hang out with me. So we would do a lot of creative stuff at home. 
So I think I would, I would say at a very young age, I wanted to be a comic book artist, comic book creator. And then going into like junior high and high school, my interests kind of diversified, got into a bunch of different stuff. But I would say by the time I left high school, I was pretty determined to be Jim Lee. Like that was the big thing. Like Image Comics had just started and Wildstorm had been running things, or I guess they were like Aegis Entertainment or Homage Studios back then. But a lot of a lot of kids like me were like, oh, there's an Asian guy who makes comic books and they're really great and everybody loves them and I can make a million dollars and buy a house so I can justify. And this is for your younger readers. This is when comic books did not have mega million movies or TV shows. All of us fringe comic book enthusiasts were treated like geeks, like rejects. So it was not cool to like comic books at that age. But I love them with all my heart, and that's what I wanted to do. So that's what I thought I would do. But my mom was like, no, you need to have something to fall back on. You need to go to college. Um, and I was a good student. So I ended up at UC San Diego, originally thinking that I was going to study animation. But as soon as I got there, their animation program shut down. So I went to the next best thing, which was film. I was very much into film around that time, like Gus Van Sant and... Um, Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez were, were like popular. So I kind of wanted to be like them. Um, so I studied film. What I didn't know was that UCSD is a very avant-garde film program uh, started by Manny Farber, who if anyone, any intellectuals in the, in the crowd know, he was the guy who wrote White Termite versus Elephant, or White Elephant versus Termite Art. It's a very seminal 60s era, 70s era um, art critique. So I studied film under like some really heavy hitters in the avant-garde scene, and it changed my mindset. At the time, I still stuck with comics, but I was mostly into like indie comics. I was finally starting to read, I think, Love and Rockets, and I really loved um, Adrian Tomine, did like Optic Nerve, 32 Stories. And I was trying to figure out, like, do I still want to do, like, action-y kind of comics? Or do I want to do anime? Or do I want to do these, like, very real slice-of-life stuff that's very similar to the films that I'm making? Um, and I, I was kind of stuck in that confusion. And when I graduated, there wasn't, like, any great opportunities waiting for me. So I just did life. And I didn't come back to comics until about, I would say, 2007, 2008. I had just relocated back to California. I'd been out of state for a little bit. And I had previously, in the, in the beginning of, of the 2000s, I had followed some comics people onto the online platforms. I was a huge fan of Brian Lee O'Malley before he was before he was Brian Lee O'Malley. He used to be in this um, this website called Impromanga with like Corey S. Lewis and Robert DeJesus and a bunch of other up and coming artists. Um, I followed people back then, like 2002, 2003. And in 2008, there was like new people on the scene. There was like Drew Weinig, um, there was Hope Larson, um, Scott McLeod was doing a lot of stuff to foster new creatives, Kazu Kibushi. So I kind of followed a lot of those people, but I lurked for years and years and years. And um, some life stuff happened where I had to come back to San Diego and be around family. So I sort of took my online influence and the things that I had done online to support other artists. And I did it in person with the with the fine art gallery scene. And so I've been doing that for about eight years. And then recently I just uh, quit my day job so that I could focus on writing and drawing comics. 
the first comic that I'm doing is uh, I've been working on it for eight months and it's not exactly finished, but it's a uh, it's a love okay, letter okay. to my best be friend. Okay, cool. I was going to make sure. I was like, uh, be careful about telling stories on uh, you don't know who's listening and who's who has no oh, problem yeah. in plots. I have, I have unfortunately very drunkenly talked about this project a lot, but it's such a unique project that I don't think anyone can get away with stealing it from me. Sure, it's a personal one. You're good. <laughs> it's very personal. It's um, about some robots, a little bit about AI. It's um, set in a sort of alternative near future, um, and it's called Crescent Moons. And that was the name of my uh, my childhood best friend, who's my late best friend. Um, he passed away in 2015, right before I, I joined the San Diego art scene. Um, he had created these junior high characters, these little robots called the Crescent Moons. So I just sort of reinterpreted them. And I've been nonstop thinking about Crescent Moons for like eight months and drawing and writing them and breaking my head about it. <laughs> I remember, so speaking of stealing ideas, uh, I did art. I did like a, a drawing thing. I think it's Salvation Army, which I'm not a big fan of that organization, but just for a Christmas celebration. And so I was celebrating. I was helping make sure homeless kids had something to celebrate, like had a celebration, had a good, cool Christmas party. So I was doing free drawings for them. Um, as one person came over to me and they were hanging out, and he's like, you know, I got this comic idea. And he starts talking about this comic idea. I was like, ah, uh, you should not. And it, it felt weird because I want to encourage this kid to talk to people about their uh, their hobbies and what they're into. And I also want to say, you don't really know me. You don't know if I'm a good person. I could steal it. And they're like, I trust you. I was like, you, but you don't know my name. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard, right? Like when you're a very, um, you know, intelligent, open-hearted, open-minded person, um, it, you, you become, you have a welcoming presence and people just want to open up to you. And as human beings, we need, especially since the pandemic and COVID and all the crazy stuff in the world, we need deep connections with people. But there's truth that there are people who will maliciously steal ideas and energy from you. And there's some people that will subconsciously do it. They might even forget that they heard it from you and it'll be rattling around their head for like five years and then boom, it's out there. You know, um, yeah, I'm in agreement with you. It's, 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 a, it's a hard it's a hard line to toe, you know, um, because you want to encourage kids, but it needs to be in a more sort of protective, like, if I may plug, Little Fish Studios does a very good job at mentoring young creators into creating their own comic books. And that's, people may know, your listeners may know from Matt Dunford, who has worked with the organization for a long time, and also Alonzo Nunez, who is also, uh, what is he, the, the president of Comic Fest now? Yeah, he got he got promoted. Yeah. Um, I for folks who are in the San Diego area, I do highly recommend checking out the uh, Little Fish. Oh, shit, I'm blanking on the name again. Little Fish Studios, right? Yeah, Little Fish Studios. Okay, Just making sure. I was like, I was gonna put a big in there. I'm like, little big. That doesn't make any sense. Little <laughs> fish, check it out. That's a sushi place. No. <laughs> um, I really love your artwork. I really do, because as I was uh, coming up with questions for the podcast, I was looking, I was scrolling through all your photos on social media, and it is gorgeous, um, because you have really good anatomy, and then your shading is, I, I don't want, 
when I say scribble, I don't mean it in an insulting way. I don't mean it like, you know, just knocking shit out. What I mean is, is that your shading is a bunch of lines and it adds such wonderful energy to everything. Like if the character is just sitting and not doing anything dynamic, they still look dynamic. And I was just mesmerized that there's one character that is all he's doing that you don't, there's not even a body. It's just a character looking off this way and it looks almost like the character's tired. But I was looking at all the uh, shading that you did on the different parts of his face and it was just gorgeous. And I'm like, I, I was looking through it around friends, but my friends weren't looking at what I was looking at. And I was just like compelled to be like, hey, look at my friend's work. <laughs> you didn't see this shit. <laughs> that is the nicest thing anyone has ever said about my work. Thank you. <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure, I'm entirely self-taught. I've never really like, uh, I, I mean, I go to life drawing. I got pulled into life drawing through a friend and that probably helped me a lot about, especially anatomy, because I was terrible at anatomy for years because I've always wanted to draw superhero characters doing ridiculous things. And I didn't understand how skeletons and muscles and fat worked at all. But, you know, like I, I study on my own and I, and I try to draw as much as possible. Um, I think as an artist though, I'm just very indecisive. I don't know how I want something to look. Um, so like when I go about a drawing, I'm like, I imagine one thing and then I start putting pencil to paper. I usually start with pencil because that's how I always started. But yeah, when I start seeing it materialize, like half the time I'm like, oh my God, you really don't know what you're doing, dude. <laughs> so my, I would say my method is like, I just fuck it up until I can live with myself. <laughs> I think that's every artist's motto. <laughs> <laughs> Because that blank page is uh, intimidating, and I tell people, like, uh, at, at, okay, at Midsummer Scream, someone asks, what's my favorite thing to draw? And I told them, it, my favorite thing to draw is something I've never drawn before. I, there's a million, there's an infinite amount of characters, and I can draw a lot of characters, but having, being able to draw an infinite amount of characters, you, re, you there's so many characters that you miss out on. And someone asked me to draw Pumpkinhead. I love the movies, I just never got around to drawing it. And I was like, oh, this is so much fun. I love drawing this character. Um, and having that direction. And that's why I love art challenges, because they have prompts. And the prompts direct your mind to do a thing. Because when you have that blank sheet of paper, a lot of times you're like, oh, fuck. I'm making something up that doesn't exist yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like I suffer from the opposite thing, where I have a lot of intentions and I don't have the skill set to do it. So I'm like, oh, you screwed that one. <laughs> um, I always recommend uh, the classes that I, when people ask like, what kind of school do you take? And I'm like, well, you can learn art, but you said you're self-taught. Um, what's really cool is if you are observant and you're watching, you said you watch cartoons, you watch movies, you went to school for film, you read comics, all of that was your classes you are learning as you're learning with visual medium and just absorbing everything um where was i going with this uh self-taught oh uh you said you took life drawing stuff uh life drawing and 2d design are the best classes that you can take i love life drawing life drawing is so even if you're drawing something like bugs bunny i feel like life drawing gave me a sense that things have depth and so you still mm -hmm. want to make sure the character has, even if it's like really not an, an 
anatomically correct, even if it's not like a human being or realistic, you still kind of want some place for a brain to exist. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think um, when I got into life drawing, I was around a lot of people that are very skilled artists. There's a lot of retirees that will go and they're like amazing and they work in all kinds of mediums. It was this guy Daniel Shu that was painting in watercolor, like a la prima, like just crazy fast. Our, our friend Tom Fagan, who does very like consistent line work, almost never lifts his hand. He's like, I think he like draws for weddings professionally. Like he's retired now, but to make scratch for make to make a few thousand dollars, he'll draw a wedding just impromptu or in situ. Um, so I was intimidated, but I'm in this new sort of mindset where um, instead of like having this preconceived conception of what I'm drawing. I let it, I, I really perceive what I'm actually doing. I think if you can visualize what you're doing and you can see like with anatomy, like how everything connects, you know, like I, in, in your last podcast, I think you and the last guest were talking about the hardest things to draw, like cars. Yes, I hate drawing cars, bicycles also. But I feel nowadays, uh, especially since I've taken the pressure off of myself from working a day job and I can focus on what I'm what I'm drawing, when I understand how things fit together, I draw way better. And light works the same way for me. I never knew how to do shading, but now that I understand light as like this sort of orb-like thing that casts highlights and creates shadows, I understand how to do depth a lot better, what to contrast. And two-dimensional design also, like I just did a birthday drawing of my friend and I don't, I don't generally do backgrounds but I did create contrast from her figure and the background, which was mostly concrete and white. And I don't think if I didn't have a, an idea of, of two-dimensional design and, and contrast, especially, I don't think I would have done that in the past. My, it's funny that you say light because like one of my favorite things to do is uh, I love shading. I love shadows. Um, and I love the difference between, uh, I think it's an, I know cast shadow. Cast shadow is the shadow I always have memorized, but I think it's an uh, ambient shadow. I think that's the ter term. Am I right? Mm -hmm. I, I think so. Yeah, I'm very. I'm really bad with the terms too. <laughs> I didn't yeah. go to art school. <laughs> but I I always have when I'm working digitally, I'll have a layer for the shadow from the 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 the, the ambient shadow, and I think that's the term for it. It's a shadow that the light is casting, and it's your body, so you're gonna have shadow on your arm. The cast shadow is whatever is in front of your arm. And it's blocking the shadow. It's adding it on there. And a lot of times the ambient shadow is going to be very soft. And the cast shadow is going to be very hard depending on how close it is to the object. I love doing that. I really do. Um, I'm not as amazingly skilled with lighting as a lot of people are. Because they'll add a bunch of different textures to the lighting. And I'm like, cool. I use yeah. a lot of flat colors. Because I like flat colors. Because I was also raised by cartoons. And I'm stuck. I love cartoons. I really do. And uh, I, I met Summer Scream. They're like, oh, I like your cartoon style. I'm like, cool. It's because I'm lazy. No, I didn't tell them that. I'm like, thank you. But in my head, I'm like, yeah, flat colors. Woo. And adding the slightest shadow and the slightest lighting <laughs> makes my stuff look a lot better than I think it does. Right? It peps it. It's, it's almost like a trick. You're like, this can't be that easy. Like, <laughs> how no, I have this friend who also shows in art shows around me, and um, he's like one of those people that, who understands light and shadow, 
Um, and I should know better because I went to film school. I, I had to physically light things, you know, I had to learn photography and all that. But my friend Paul Naylor, he does a lot of like horror themed um, drawings and paintings and he'll do like colored light. So the, there might be like a blue light on one side and then like a magenta light on the other. And so this person has like dual lighting, which creates dual shadows. <laughs> and like my brain is like, oh, shut down, <laughs> blue screen of death. <laughs> seriously uh i kind of <laughs> i don't want to say i know what i'm doing with it with the dual lighting i just uh bullshit my way through it and it works out <laughs> and i'll usually do that when i'm working with horror films i'll i'll when i work and you said that your friend works with scary uh images with horror images i think a lot of times you have to have the dual lighting when it comes to horror i think that's what I, what do you think okay I kind of think it's because retro, like vintage horror movies, have taught us that's what you have to expect from horror movies: the dual lighting, like the vibrant dual lighting on it. You know, I would say, okay, I'm gonna get a little bit film geeky here. Good. I would, I would say a little bit of horror gets its DNA from film noir. Okay. Which is very post-war and very dimly lit, and about obviously fatalistic themes, so it's very dark. And then as you move into um, sort of modern horror, you know, people want to do fun stuff with color. And so, yeah, you like throw some gels on some lights. You have a blue light that's like very obvious. You have an orange light that's very obvious. And I think aesthetically, like it's very pleasing. You know, it creates dimension while also being very designing in a sense. Um, and it just gives it that pop, you know, like in the old days of Hollywood, it was just like, a straight um, light directly on the subjects, maybe a backlight, the halo light, and then maybe like a, what they call a kicker light to kind of fill in some of the shadows. And we just got used to seeing that. Like it's, we almost think of that as reality. It's so boring, so vanilla, so pedestrian that I think, um, especially people that work in horror that are really trying to like be sensationalistic and grab your attention and make you feel something guttural, visceral, like playing with the color and the lights and using very strong lighting, I think is, it's almost like a rule breaker. It's almost like you're not supposed to do that. So yeah, we're going to do that. Thank you for getting really film nerdy because that was very <laughs> informative and very awesome. I enjoyed every bit of that. <laughs> I'm, I'm a, I do consider myself a film nerd, but not with, with, with film nerd without the information to back it up. <laughs> Self-taught uh, film nerd. Speaking of movies, uh, recently <laughs> Batgirl got canceled, and it's uh, it has really Soft. upset me because I've been, I've been looking forward to that movie so much. Every image of it, like uh, when we first saw Batgirl in her costume in her outfit, I I really loved. It was great. Yeah, it was so good, and I love that style. When 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 that when that version of the costume came into the comics, I was like, this is great, and I. I've only been drawing Batgirl in that costume because it's just really fun to draw. Yeah. And so I was really looking forward to this movie. And then it got canceled. I'm really upset about this. I really am. Yeah, some some money some money bag was like, oh, I can't I can't recoup my investment on this, huh? That yeah, that's a shame. Um I actually wasn't following that project. I'm not a huge, huge DC person, funny enough. But I love that because like I said, I followed a lot of online artists and Babs Tar was partially behind that costume and i've loved babs tar for many many years when she started out as 
a newbie and then started getting those DC contracts. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. Like that was just a crappy move on whoever was pulling strings to do that. I'm okay with cancellations when they're early on in the project. And I'm like, oh, that's a bummer. Oh, well. But this was really far along. <laughs> it's always going to be pretty much done, wasn't it? Like they just needed to go to post, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it, it might be one of those situations where the fans are like, hey, release the footage. And then like they hire someone to edit. <laughs> and then we get like the first cut and then like the, the later cut. <laughs> They're saying that we should expect uh, the premiere to be at Comic-Con and Hall H next year. Oh, is that for real? Or? No, I'm, I, I, I... Maybe, that, yeah. That's I, a good prediction. I would, I would put some money down on that. I think you are absolutely right that this is to, to stir up buzz and then make it a big release. Yeah, you know, like, I, I feel like Warner Brothers, money-wise, is... is you know, kind of shit in the bed when you compare them to what MCU is doing. So anything you can do to, to, you know, buzz some interest into it, yeah. What's really strange is that I feel like, I feel like Marvel, the only reason why Marvel is successful is that they've invested a lot because they, they go out on limbs, they invest in people and because like they hire actors who are not necessarily big names at the time. Robert Downey Jr., uh, Chris Evans, they were known people, but no like no heavy hitters. Uh, and they invest in them. And they they luck out because then he was a perfect Captain America. He was a perfect Iron Man. And it just goes along this whole thing. We will we will never see another <laughs> another Avengers like the first, like ending with Endgame, because that was the first time it's ever happened in such a 10 year span of movie making yeah <laughs> it's nuts it's insane but a lot of studios think that they can just do it and not have the heart behind it because uh i, I remember when uh universal tried to do the dark world franchise and they're like here's a photo of all of our dark world characters we don't actually care about these movies but we want to do something like marvel and it's like <laughs> we want some money <laughs> we want some money yeah but Marvel loves those films. They, they 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 do well by those characters. I would have to say that there's probably some back office stuff that involves Kevin Feige and like some high powered investors. Um, one of the things that's kind of been on my mind lately, um, and this is partially um, fueled by this this uh, Instagram user who's a psychologist who writes a lot about capitalism, but um, a thing that a lot of people don't think about is that Marvel has huge guns behind it, a lot of money. And some of that is like the Department of Justice, Department of Defense. Like they invest a lot of money into those movies because they get people to the theaters, they get people interested in military stuff and US exceptionalism stuff. They tell these stories, they're, they, you know, it, they're a huge power, Disney, Marvel, boom. If you remember back when, um, when Disney was having financial problems, uh, Walt Disney actually used to go and talk with like Nazi sympathizers because they had a lot of money and Disney stayed afloat for many, many decades because of that. You know, it's not it's not a coincidence that big business all just sort of folds into each other. The more capital you can pile in one place, the better the better off you're going to capture everything in the market. And I think this is one of those cases where, you know, Marvel as a publishing company was failing 
and started selling off all their properties to Sony and Fox. And they saw the interest starting to drum up in the early 2000s. So Feggy back then was probably like, yeah, I'm going to get in on this, but I'm going to do it correctly. I'm going to create a skeleton for this and I'm going to go and, you know, get in bed with the, with the big investors and the people that really want these things to happen. And I'm going to go and find actors that are compelling. But like, even to think like, you know, what those actors were doing when they were beginning their careers, what they did in the middle of those careers is also just like a huge thing to talk about. Like those guys, they, they don't stop doing junkets. They're going around the world year round promoting these films. And I'm sure, you know, collecting huge sums of money for it, but it's also generating a lot more income and a lot more buzz for them. So they're, they're kind of in a way, I'm, I guess I'm being the MCU naysayer, but they're kind of like the Yankees. They can't lose, you know, <laughs> it's, it's it's true though it's it's very true um but i feel like you're I, I completely forgot that they were backed up by the military because if you look at that first iron man uh because i know was it uh michael bay transformers was very influenced by the military because they had legit jets tech uh <laughs> people who yeah. knew what they were saying so it actually felt authentic and i feel the same goes for iron man that they have they have the actual people involved that would be involved. Fuck. I didn't even think about that. You're right. And if you remember in Iron Man 2, Elon Musk makes a cameo. Yeah. Big tech. Big tech was in there. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. Uh, even uh, in Iron Man 2, they had uh, Sam Rockwell's character, Hammer, at uh, when he's introducing the robots, you have the music from all the branches of the military. And I didn't even know. I didn't know that the military had copyright music until I watched that movie and the end credit says uh, music provided by, and they, they said to all the branches of the military, I'm like, really? Come on, US, really? <laughs> <laughs> Gotta monetize, man. That's so silly though. That I'm like, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that we had musical cues for our different branches. That was silly. I think it's silly. <laughs> So speaking of projects, speaking of big studios, uh, and the reason why I brought up Batgirl is that one of my friends mentioned that you can make a whole universe of canceled projects from DC. Uh, if they did make a universe and they made a team that had to fight next fight against the executives that keep trying to kill these characters, who would be the leader of that Justice the Justice League of canceled projects? That's so. Hmm. I was I was looking into actually some other DC projects that had been canceled in the past. And what stuck out at me was that there was a Plastic Man project that never came into fruition. And it could have possibly starred, um, I think Keanu Reeves one, but I'm not into that. Uh, Bruce Campbell. There could have been a Bruce Campbell Plastic Man. Or more recently, David Tennant. And I'm down as fuck for either one of those. But if if we could have like a super sarcastic plastic man leading <laughs> the Justice League against the crazy executives and get um who's it, Kyle Baker, who did Plastic Man for years and it was like hilarious run, get Kyle Baker to be involved in some way, like that's that's what I want. <laughs> for sure. So my mind was going towards uh like Nicolas Cage's Superman or uh I forgot to look it up, but Wonder Woman, DC was going to make a Wonder Woman TV show, a new a new Wonder Woman TV show, but it got it didn't even get past the pilot, and there's still photos of 
Wonder Woman went running through the streets in her costume. And I remember when uh, they first showed the costume on, on the internet and so many assholes were like, Wonder Woman's wearing pants, that's dumb. Uh, but I think Plastic Man would be such a funnier leader of this group. I mean, I loved the Plastic Man cartoon as a kid. And even when they threw him, was it? No, it was the Elongated Man, sorry. They had the Elongated Man in the Flash, and I thought he was kind of a funny character. But, like, I don't generally do too much funny in comics. But when I genuinely read something funny that's in comics, like, I'm all in. Like, Agents, uh, was it? Agents of Hate, Next Wave? I thought that was hilarious. I love that comic. I want to see more. I want to see Fing Fang Foom in underwear. Like, yes, I'm on board for that. So, yeah, like... Dude, Plastic Man is my guy, I guess. I think that would be really funny. I think that that would be unexpected. Like, someone, uh, well, it would be Batgirl winding up in this universe of canceled projects. I don't, I was thinking of what their the team's name would be, and I don't want to use the term cancel. Like, I think there's got to be a better word for it, because I feel like too many uh, Republicans are using the term canceled as, like, trying to yeah. be censored or trying to, um, that that's the... It's it's the whole wokeism trying to cancel like okay, uh, what's her face from uh Ro- not Rogue One Mandalorian uh, Gina something. Yeah, Carano, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Online, like I keep uh, every now and then I see an ad for her newest movie and it says Disney canceled her. I don't want to use canceled for this team because I think that dumb people are using it stupidly. Um, but I think that. I, I kind of want to draw this now. I want Plastic Man, like, back all shows up in this universe, and Plastic Man, Plastic Man, like, the executives are trying to end us, but we're going to come for them. <laughs> <laughs> they say that we can't earn the money, but let's... Like, <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask... And maybe, maybe it could be one of those things where, like, his refusal to get in bed with like military, the military industrial complex entertainment complex is actually what's the saving grace. Like I want to make money cause I'm, I'm a, I'm a great star. I have star power, but for some reason they don't, they don't want anything to do with me. <laughs> oh, because you're an actual hero. I want to add Swamp Thing to this list, even though Swamp Thing did. Oh get- yes. Swamp Thing got one season. He got further than the other guys. <laughs> Was there a newer Swamp Man, a Swamp Thing that I missed? Because I remember the one from like the '90s with like Heather Locklear. Like... There was a newer Swamp Thing that got canceled after one season mysteriously. Wow. And I think you should. I mean, I... Okay, I have to look that up because I don't know anything about it. Yeah, because it was more of a horror thing. Do they not know the Beset Run and the Alan Moore? Like, that's what Swamp Thing should be. Check it out. It's the, that that first episode is straight horror and it's fucking scary. Oh man, it, it's gonna piss me off, isn't it? I'm gonna get to the end of the season and be like, "Yes, what? that is <laughs> correct." Firefly all over again. Because <laughs> when it got canceled, a lot of us were like that. Yeah, Gotham lasts a long time, and Swamp Thing was <laughs> Swamp Thing was done hard, like straight to the comics and got canceled after one season. Is Gotham still running? No, Gotham's done. Gotham oh. ended a while ago. But I actually really love Gotham. Uh, the first season of Gotham was silly as shit. But once you get past the first season, they uh, 
they realize that they shouldn't take themselves too seriously and they really uh spread their wings and it's one of the coolest batman projects i've ever seen uh i don't you know what? i'm gonna spoil it they they had professor pig on gotham oh okay I don't know Professor Pig too much, but I think Professor Pig shows up in Pennyworth, which I think is kind of oh. like a spinoff, isn't it? Is it? Did you ever watch Pennyworth? I didn't watch Penny. Is it worth it? I saw two episodes and I was pretty compelled. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, did, I didn't. It's know a little it bit secret agent-y. You know, it's it's obviously it's it's way before Bruce is old enough to know anything. Uh, actually, I think Bruce is probably not even in the picture yet. But Alfred is is doing this sort of man of mystery thing in the UK, and he's kind of bad at it. And I guess it's Alfred Year One, <laughs> so to speak. What has been one of the strangest things you've drawn? Um, I would have to say my potato portraits. <laughs> <laughs> at the at the beginning of the pandemic, um, I don't know if you remember, like a lot of people were passing around like dumb games to like pass your time. And one of them was like this really crudely drawn potato with like eyes, I think. And they said, draw yourself as this potato. And I was doing it on my phone. I was like zooming in and drawing. And it was, you know, to kind of get over the technological uh, uh, hurdles, I really just went super ADD about them. And I did three of them. And they look completely psycho and weird with like just contorted noses and eyes and faces, but they're very expressionistic. And that's something that I generally don't do because I don't, I don't consider myself like a very funny cartoonist or anything like that. I've tried and failed. And so I kind of just stay out of that arena, but those portraits, I, I'm like, I was doing something there. <laughs> I was a little bit crazy and, and having a little bit of cabin fever, but something came out of it. <laughs> I feel like expressionism can be funny. I feel like a lot of times people focus too much on. Uh... It's weird because some people think they're not funny, or no, some people think they're funny and they're not because they just have to relax and just just do something silly, just draw something silly. You'll be surprised how much just something silly will be a lot funnier. Uh, something silly that people can recognize will be a lot funnier than if you try to actually build a joke. And I feel like your potatoes are that kind of silly where you're like, oh, I tried it and it failed. I'm like, did you though? Because I think your potatoes knocked it out of the park. I was like half crazed. I think that's the recipe for me is like, yeah, be a little bit out of your mind. You're, you're trying to hold it together a little bit too much. And that's it's constricting. I feel like surrealism helps when you're trying to do a silly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And surrealism, you gotta be a little crazy. <laughs> Because you're not you're you're not relying too much on on to, you're not relying too much on making an actual thought <laughs> like and I, instead of making a complete sentence just start throwing some words out there make an ad lib. <laughs> um, when this episode airs online, it will be a uh, world uh, World Elephant Day. Uh, who is your favorite elephant? That's August twelfth uh, today. Today when August this comes 12th. out, it'll be August twelfth. Okay, so for World Elephant Day, okay, if we're going strict definition of elephant, nope. I want to say... Not strict, it's not a strict definition. I'm just making sure about that because uh, there's an elephant character on uh, Green Lantern and I kind of dig him, so he's not necessarily... Oh, I, see, I knew I, I knew there was going to be some characters that I didn't know that are super cool. I went with Babar, 
because I grew up with Babar, but I always wanted Babar to actually be an African elephant and not like this French colonist that's super westernizing things. So if someone can do that, Babar, then that's the one I'll, I'll support. But my main dude, if we're a little flexible with the definition of an elephant, is Snuffleupagus. Yeah. Because I came to this recent revelation, and I may be way off on this and stretching, but um, I think Snuffleupagus is Big Bird's shadow self or his inner child. I think Big Bird goes out in public and is, you know, everyone flocks around Big Bird and thinks, oh, it's a super cool person. Yeah, just friendly, nice. But I think there's like a lonely, unseen, like unrecognized part of Big Bird that Big Bird is always trying to share with people. And people are just like, what? You're not like that. You're an extrovert. Like I, I totally uh, started to gravitate towards that idea because I feel like that's me. Like in public, I do have like a kind of public persona that people have gotten to know. And then when I'm online, like you may have witnessed, I've had a couple of awkward social media breakdowns where I'm just like, you know, I'm a very lonely person. Like there's some terrible things that have happened in my life and I have some dark thoughts and dark feelings. And I sometimes want a safe place where I can share those. And I just, I realized, especially during the pandemic, that there's not a lot of people in my life that can hold space for that. And I had to go to therapy and, and kind of figure out a way to hold space for myself. But then I started to really love Snuffleupagus in a different way because I'm like, he's not just an imaginary friend. He's actually this really real essential part of humanity that people don't often um, talk about, you know, like we, we, we lick our wounds in private, but I think Big Bird, I think if, if this metaphor has any, holds any water, Big Bird is trying to share something about himself that a lot of people aren't ready to see. I'm really bummed that people, people think that negative thoughts are a bad thing. Because a lot of times when you have like a sad thought or a dark thought or when you're saying something, when you say something that could happen that is bad, I've had people like, no, 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 don't say that because then you'll, you'll seal your fate to failure. You'll, you're, you'll create your own failure by thinking that. I'm like, no, that's not how the world works. I'm okay with being optimistic. I like being optimistic. Yeah. But thinking bad things, if you, if you vilify that, that's not healthy. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's that that's a binary dichotomy, right? Like that's that's how you get good and evil. That's how you get these very religious um, uh, dichotomies of like, oh, I can't ever think bad thoughts or ever think about you know dark desires of mine. But you know, when you go to therapy and you, when you when you go into any type of modality that's helpful to the human spirit, you realize, oh, I have to embrace both sides of the equation you know that's the only way I can be a whole person like I may have like these deep dark sexual desires but I need to understand them about myself and how are those prosperous for me how do those help me how do those help me keep an even keel or I might have dark and like thoughts of death and mortality but how do those dark death thoughts of mortality help me live my life better that's the thing that I think is missing you know and um you know Things changed in the world, especially because of this pandemic, especially because of things happening politically. Um, I think people started to realize that we haven't really been living whole lives because we've been living under the, the weight of that tradition of like, you have to either be good or bad, black or white, positive or negative. And no, we're a mix. We're, we are always a mix. 
we're always going through a path of life that has hills and valleys that has peaks and and pits you know i feel like a lot of older folks like whenever i uh <laughs> whenever i see people online complain about younger generations it's always like the silly shit that younger generations do and they forget that it's not about their generation it's just because kids do silly shit it with their learning they're learning how to be people um yeah. but i think i think that uh <laughs> the younger generations are going to be uh, so much healthier because like oh, yeah. i i go to this tea place and they're after school there's a lot of kids that are hanging out in the front and i heard them just like uh, yell at each other i love you and they weren't even in a relationship they're just expressing how platonic love yes it was it was amazing it was amazing i loved it i'm like i i can't encourage that or apply it because i'm some stranger that just walked past i'm not going to be the creepy guy i'm going to in my head be like yeah, oh girl <laughs> i love you jimmy i love you if too it, if no one said that in a while i love you oh i i got i got a hell of a group of friends that make sure to let everyone know that they love them but i'm going to make sure you know i love you <laughs> thank you um what would you get what advice would you give to uh someone looking to break into the art community or be a part of the art community? I would say um, just kind of uh, follow the trends in, in your in your neighborhood. Um, if there's art shows, show up to them, check them out. They might not be your thing, but they might. Um, you might even meet somebody who's kind of in the same situation as you, someone who wants to get started or someone who's lurked for a while. Um, you know, I'm thinking back to like when I, in times in my life, when I wasn't doing art or I didn't feel very encouraged by art. And I always had friends who may not necessarily have been artists who would say, surround yourself with things that inspire you. So I'd say like, do that. Keep yourself inspired. Uh, surround yourself with things that you like. Um, and I know um, that sometimes it can be discouraging when you see stuff that you really, really like because you want to automatically be that, but it, just keep it around as like the seasoning, you know, um, when you're ready to use the seasoning, you'll know how to use it and you'll know how you'll have the depth, the depth, depth for it. But um, when you're just learning how to make an omelet, sometimes you got to like break eggs. Sometimes you got to learn how to scramble. Sometimes you got to, you know, learn how to just do with salt and pepper. And if you want to be a creator and you want to be creative, do as much omelets and salt and pepper as you can. Do the basic stuff. Um, if you just have to draw on scratch paper for a long time, do that. If the very first piece that you submit to a gallery or a pop-up show is literally drawn on copy paper that you put in like a 99 cent dollar store frame, do that. Do little steps and whittle your way away to like what you wanna do. Because like I said, I've been doing this for eight years and I don't think I'm like that great. Um, but I did meet a lot of friends. I did make a lot of connections. I did get myself exposed to a lot of influential people. Um, so yeah, just take take the baby steps and encourage people. I would say like create a community. If you can, encourage and inspire a community because we all can't really do it alone. You know, it helps to have friends and company. <laughs>